Amen. You can have a seat. Hear now the reading of God's word from Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you uh, trembling at your word, uh, longing to fall to your feet and to see you in your glory. And so we pray by your spirit that you would uh, break into our hearts and our minds now, Lord, that you would bring us into immediate Uh, closeness with you, that we would see your face by your spirit. Lord, even as we bring uh, all of this week's desires and disappointments and joys, and all of this year's wait as well, we pray that your spirit would come to minister to us, that you would do your work, your service, or the ways that you care for us. We pray that you would accomplish that even through my meager words this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first of all, I um, just wanted to say good morning. Uh, my name is Daniel Robbins, and um, I was a pastor here for about five years, uh, a few years ago, and uh, we've missed this body a lot. So it's good to be back with you this morning, and uh, it's been good to have been here for a few weeks worshiping and hugging people, and uh, this is a lovely congregation. We've missed you guys. Um, the second thing is we'll continue in Revelation uh, And you'll notice some of the same verses are read, but we're going to take it uh, with a few more verses now from a different angle. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk about two things. And the first that I hope uh, you walk away with is a sense of the absolute centrality of the church for what God is doing in the world. And the second is that you would have a much clearer vision of Christ as the center of her glory and her life. 
that the whole church is built up around Christ himself. I hope you see why, after all the knockdowns the church has endured, she is still buoyant, worthy of hope, worthy of investment. And uh, in fact, it's the same hope that drives our own family's mission work and hope for God's work in the world. If there was a year to think that the church would have failed, it probably would have been this last one. Uh, Churches all across the U.S. and Western Europe uh, closed their doors for months. Uh, In Scotland, we were in a strict lockdown for 17 weeks where we couldn't leave our house for more than half an hour. Um, Churches were closed from March through midsummer, and then when they opened in midsummer, they were only allowed 50 people at a time in spite of whatever capacity they had. Uh, And then they closed again in Scotland in October. And have remained closed from October until about Easter time this year. Uh, A lot of us began to worry about the church. Having been closed and dissipated for so long, will our people still remain? Or is the church going to be scattered after all this time? Well, uh, as we were closing up our time in Aberdeen, uh, where I was studying, I was on a walk with a college pastor who I'd been mentoring. And I was asking him, so, you know, where are you headed off to next? And he said, yeah, I'm actually going to go and meet with this uh, new girl who's been coming to our studies. I was like, oh, really, a new girl in the time of COVID? He said, yeah, you know, um, because we've put all of our Bible studies online and church online, uh, she started coming because she didn't feel intimidated to show up to a Sunday service. And so she started coming, and that's been cool. And he said, actually, you know what, she's actually come to faith in these last six months. In the months where everyone was worried about what's happened in the church, it turns out that God was unflinching in his work of bringing people to faith, bringing people to come to know him. And Scotland is not an easy place to see conversions, okay? Of course, um, you talk to Nathaniel Thompson, and you'll hear a very similar story. He told me the other day, yeah, we had a a Zoom call with all the RUF ministers from the West Coast, and after everyone kind of shared four or five discouraging things that were happening because of COVID, uh, everyone said, yeah, and I've also had two or three baptisms of people coming to know the Lord, more than I've had in years. We can never know exactly what God is up to in each season. And that's part of what it means to be a creature. We don't get to glimpse when we want to the deep reality of the world. We have to follow with what finite information we have. The hard part, the problem, is that when our life brings pain and difficulty and fear, our uh, vision becomes fairly myopic. We become tunnel vision. We get overwhelmed with what's happening to us, and we don't know what to do. And so we begin reaching for quick fixes, not knowing what's going on. And so, you know, we buy all the toilet paper at Walmart, right? Or we, um, you know, tell our kids exactly what they need to be doing and control them. You know, not me. Maybe some of you did that during the pandemic and lockdown. Sorry, kids. Um, Or we grasp for political power. Hoping that if we can get a hold of one of those levers, then we can really get things back on track. Or we blame our leaders because they haven't been able to fix the heartaches and the disappointments we've suffered. And in fact, that's not just Scotland, friends. Uh, I have friends who are pastors all across the U.S. And the story I've heard from them has been the same over and over, regardless of what state they're in. Half of my congregation thinks I've forsaken Christ by requiring people to wear masks when we gather for worship. The other half think that I'm putting everyone at risk by having us gather for worship in the first place. Some are angry I've spoken about the rampant injustice perpetrated against blacks and minorities in this country. Other people are angry that I've stopped talking about it at any point. The fact is, is that we so 
desperately wanted someone to fix it for us. We so desperately wanted a silver bullet to remove all the pain, all the confusion, the frustration, the uncertainty that uh, we grasped for quick fixes. And among those, for many of my friends, was also uh, expecting our leaders to save us. Of course, the truth is that no matter how well any leader handled this last year, any session, any church, uh, no one came out of the pandemic unscathed. No one was a winner through the pandemic. But the good news is that we have a much better hope. The church doesn't need winners. We have a Savior. We have a Savior who has suffered death, who lives beyond the reach of death, death having exhausted itself, and that Savior cares for us. That's the good news for us this morning. So three things this morning as we think about Revelation. First, the church is at the center of God's agenda for the world. Second, the church is stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And third, the church's glory is the Lord's cruciform glory. Jesus is the Lord is the church's glory. So Revelation is a book of unveiling the deep reality of what God is doing. You get, the, the veil gets pulled back and you see this profound vision of what's really going on behind the scenes in the heavenlies and what God's up to. And what's interesting is that in the very opening of the book, the first thing out of the Lord's mouth is concern for the church. He doesn't say, now John, the church is going to suffer under Roman persecution, so let me tell you exactly how to get a Christian senator into the Roman Senate to protect the church. Or, let me tell you the secrets of the deep knowledge of the world, right? He says, write what you see in a book and send it to my people. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, each a particular city with specific Christians whom he knows well. In fact, the next two letters of the book are chapters to each of those churches, naming particularities of each church and what they're facing, naming people in churches. Christ cares for his church. But there's actually more in this passage. If you look in verse 12, John turns around to see who's speaking to him, and the first thing he sees actually are seven golden lampstands. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So yes, Jesus is at the center of this vision, but actually what John tells us is that when he comes and he comes into the heavenly realms, the first thing that confronts him are actually what we find out to be images of the church. And he has to kind of peek around them to get a glimpse of Jesus. So when it comes time for uh, John to see Jesus in his full radiant glory as the king of the cosmos who reigns over all things by the power of his word, where is he standing? He's standing among his churches. He's standing among his churches and holding on to these seven stars. Now we can take those seven stars uh, as the angels and we can take them as the spirit warriors that God has all throughout Revelation and Daniel, his heavenly administration who work behind the scenes, who accomplish things. Or we could also take them as pastors. The same word can mean messenger. And uh, later on in the book, it'll call these messengers to repent. Usually angels aren't called to repent. I'm inclined to think we probably don't have to choose. Actually, God's heavenly administration matches with his earthly administration. 
the point for us this morning is that actually when John glimpses the Lord Jesus in his reigning glory, what is he holding on to? He's holding on to the leadership of his churches, those who care and bury the, uh, who care the burden of his people, standing among them as one who cares for them. Uh, Paul says very, something very similar to this vision in Revelation, but in a little more pointed way. He's describing his job, and he says, My job is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, that is the revelation of Jesus, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When God looks to reveal his wisdom, to demonstrate that he is wise and faithful and just and good, he does it through the church. That means that the church is the sun around which God makes all other historical, earthly, and heavenly realities orbit. The church is the center of gravity in God's administration of the world. And if we're honest, this actually should challenge us deeply. Uh, For someone like myself, with an academic bent, I've spent years esteeming places like Yale and Oxford or, you know, top-ranked theologians and uh, what their opinions, uh, what they had, opinions they had about things and feeling like uh, their opinions about what's wise and what what matters, that's where the real weight is. That's where clout is. And what this vision of Revelation And Ephesians 3 tell us is actually the center of gravity for God's wisdom is found in local bodies scattered around the world. In Bellingham, in Smyrna, in Malawi, in Russia. As I mentioned before, many of us have also drunken deeply of the lie that political power and political parties are the center of gravity. If we can get them on our side and get a hold of that lever. Maybe we can kind of secure a place for the church or for ourselves in the world. What this passage tells us is that if we think that way, we have everything absolutely upside down. It is not that we need to get the political people somehow curry favor with them. They need to curry favor with the king of kings. They're the ones who are questioned. The Lord Jesus' reign is undaunted. But this is also as surprising as it is challenging. Look, for many of us, the church is often the last place we would look for life and power and joy and beauty, especially if you spent any amount of time in the church. You know the church can be messed up, (laughs) right? Um, Whether it's the arguments or the division of the church or maybe boring sermons or this missionary guy who comes and preaches too long, um, we think to ourselves, I'd rather do without the church. If I can have God without the church, then all the better. And actually, pastors think that way sometimes too. Okay? Um, Revelation presses us to see that if we distance ourselves from the church, we distance ourselves from the one who stands among the church in her midst. So the second thing is that the church is stricken and smitten and afflicted. So Revelation can say all of this, that the church is really at the center of what God is doing in his cosmic reign that we can't see all of. But when reality is unveiled, there's the church, front and center. And yet, Jesus can also speak very honestly about what the church is facing in two ways. He can speak about her persecutions and trials, and he can speak about her sin. 
John mentions this in verse 9. He says, I'm your brother in the tribulation of the affliction uh, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And Nate's done a wonderful job describing the first century, the nature of affliction and suffering for the church. Whether it's under Nero or Domitian in the 90s, uh, the church suffered from official Roman persecution, often. But also the church was weird. To ancients, Christians have no statues to worship. And then we come and we eat the flesh and the blood of our God, <laughs> right? So they, we looked like atheists and cannibals. And then on top of that, the church is actually positively disruptive. We confront things. Look, uh, one of my favorite chapters in Acts is the story in Acts 19. And uh, so many people have come to faith in Ephesus that the local idol production has begun uh, losing money. Their market's going away. And uh, the Alexander, I think his name is in the passage, gets really mad. Like, this is not appropriate. You can't take away our idol production. This is how we make our money. Also, he felt challenged about the identity of their city. And so he gets all the artisans together and they run through the city of Ephesus saying, Great is Artemis, who's the local idol, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they run through, you know, make Artemis great again. And they're angry and everything's being thrown out of control. And they start a riot. Because why? Because Christians were causing trouble. Christians were causing trouble by bringing people to faith. It is positively disruptive to be a Christian. And so how is it in those moments when the church is getting beat up when the church is in trouble, that we can say, yeah, that's the place where God's glory, where God's wisdom is revealed. It's easy to see when she's faithful, but even then, these letters that the Lord Jesus writes to his churches name both the suffering, but they also name the sin. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush at all. And of course, if you've spent any amount of time in the church or any amount of time examining your own contributions to church life, you should know very well that we are a sinful people, individually and collectively, and will continue to be. Jesus says Ephesus has abandoned the love she had at first. Pergamum has members who have indulged in doctrines that commend sexual immorality. Thyatira tolerates a false prophetess in her midst who is leading the people into sexual immorality and idolatry. Sardis, wealthy, pretends to be alive but she's dead, asleep, withering. Laodicea has been using her wealth to insulate herself from the needy and thereby insulate herself from the Lord, with the result that her allegiance to the Lord, he says, is lukewarm. And do you remember that passage? He wants to spit it out. That's a term of disgust. We spit things out we're disgusted with. And so Jesus says very frankly that he can actually be disgusted with the church at times. Of course, you can too. The thing is, in that sad state, we look at the church and think, the Lord must be far from her. The Lord must be far from her. If she's so disappointing, how can she be so central? The error is in thinking that that disgust, that heartache, that betrayal, that disappointment, makes his heart withdraw. No, Christians. It's actually because the Lord has so bound himself to his people 
that he can call out these things and be grieved by them. This passage tells us that Jesus so loves and so stands among the church that her sins and her sufferings pierce him. He doesn't turn a blind eye to her, but leads her into growth and change because she has such an important role. And so the reality of sin and the reality of suffering remind us that the real glory, the real beauty of the church is not her leaders, it's not her people, it's the Lord Jesus and what he does among her. And this is our final point. Christ himself is the glory and power of the church. The real hope and heartbeat of the church is beholding and enjoying the glory of Christ. In fact, Christ himself is her hope of vindication and liberty from her sins. And you know, the majority of this passage is actually taken up with describing and enjoying Jesus as he's presented to John. And this is the thing I love about Revelation. You read through it and John happily gushes about what he sees. And you get this sense of him being awestruck in wonder and delight before the Lord. So let's just take a minute, this may be the most helpful thing we can do, just to meditate on some of the things that he sees about the Lord. Jesus wears the clothes of a priest, but with royal exaltation. Gold sash and white robes, he walks among the lampstands. So here our priest, as a man like ourselves, bears our names before the Father and yet bears them in exaltation. His hair is white, not because he's grown dull with age, Instead, he beams with radiance. He is the well of ancient wisdom we draw from, and yet his age does not bring death. His wisdom has defeated death. His eyes glow. You know, we usually think about light coming into our eyes, and that's how we see here. Revelation says, actually, no. Jesus' eyes give out light. And so he can see into those darkest corners of our lives where we're most afraid. His bronze feet exhibit undaunted power, marching forward with a voice of overwhelming power and authority. He is our undeterred king. And his words are the sword tip of his mission and agenda, piercing, freeing, bringing safety, conviction, and light. But more than all of this, John says that his face is radiant, like the full strength of the sun. Just imagine that today. We don't see the sun often in the Northwest. Just imagine the full radiance of the Father's delight being poured out on the Son. So that in Him, in His face, is the whole glory and holiness and kindness of God exuding out to His people. It's beautiful. And the reason it's good news is because John says that that glorious one is ours. He's ours. We belong to him and he belongs to us. But also he's not distant. His spirit dwells in us. And so Christ, the glorious and radiant one, full of the Father's love, with that in mind we have to ask ourselves, thinking about the last year, the last two years, the last decade, is he sloppy with you? Is he incompetent to handle the heartaches and the disappointments and the fears you've undergone this last year? Is he quick to forget you? The one who suffered so much and now reigns for your stake and stands among you. Is he quick to forget you? Of course not, Christians. We have a great and undaunted hope that Christ is alive, working for his church, 
not just to sustain her, but actually to lead her into victory so that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. She will be victorious because we have this vision of Christ standing in her glory. And so thinking of Christ now, we have two things we can say about the church. The first is that the church's glory is a cruciform glory. And the second is that the church's power over sin is actually the Lord's power over sin. That our sin does not overcome what the Lord's doing in his church. I'll move quick through these. So the cruciform glory of the church is our Lord Jesus himself. Verse 18, I died and behold... I'm alive forevermore. Not I'm a spirit, I'm a ghost. I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The glorious one who confronts us in Revelation is the same one who hung from a cross, beaten and bloodied and rejected. The Lord's glory, it turns out, is not simply in Revelation, but encompasses also the entirety of his sufferings. That the Lord's glory is a cruciform glory. That here the great king of the world is also the lamb who is slain. Who has death on a leash. That's the image. What this practically means for us is that what trouble and affliction we face are not evidence that we're somehow off the rails of what Jesus is doing in our life or in the world. Our suffering is not a foreign power that surprises the Lord. Oh, where did that come from? I didn't know about that. Our Lord who stands in our midst has suffered these very things before. And so we can know he's not reckless in how we've suffered. Because he knows the pain and the cost of suffering personally. And that means that he carefully measures and tactically applies suffering as a tool for our good, for our joy. And so we cannot judge the success and hope of the church by how good she looks today or how little she suffers or how much power she sways in the world. In fact, her suffering in the New Testament is actually taken as the pledge of her future glory, right? What happens with Peter and John get arrested in Acts? They rejoice that they were counted worthy of suffering. Why? Because suffering in Jesus' name in the New Testament, when they think about this, they say, yeah, that's the That's the guarantee that you have a share. If you have a share in his sufferings, then you also have a share what? In his glory. You have a share in his glory. But also I want you to see that the Lord gives us some glory now in a cruciform way. What happens when you put Christians in prison in North Korea? They convert their prison mates. (laughs) And the gospel spreads. What happens when you slaughter a village of Nigerians and Christians in northern Nigeria? They continue ministering the gospel and praying for their captors and evangelizing their neighbors. And what happens when you shut down the church in the West for the good part of a year? The Lord brings people to faith. Look, the Lord's wisdom is revealed through the church's suffering as much as her victory. And it's through her humility and her place in the world that the Lord says, all these things we think have power and clout are baseless and meaningless unless I'm behind them. And so the great power governments have to throw us in jail, turns out it can be turned against them. The Lord uses the church's lowliness to show his wisdom, to bring those things that are wise to look foolish. 
to bring the things that are high to be low. So Christians don't come out of suffering looking dumb. They look wise when the Lord vindicates them. And the second thing is that the sin of the church does not overcome Jesus' own power. Jesus' power is the driving force behind the entire book of Revelation. It's a story about what God is doing, how he works and acts and shapes and renews and gives and pours out and enlivens and regenerates and awakens in and through and around and behind and in front of and even in spite of the church. That the great power and hope is actually Christ himself working not only to save his church, but to bring her to repentance. But that's the good news of Revelation, is that he will bring his church to repentance. Jesus is not asleep waiting for you to get holy enough, nor is he disinterested in the painful mess your sin has brought in your life. He is alive, attending to his churches, drawing them to repentance. Now, of course, he has shut down local congregations, and you'll see that in the next few chapters. There are churches that he warns and says, I'll remove your lampstand if you don't repent. Churches who have been unflinching in their coldness or have never heeded his calls to repentance. But the warning is actually grounded in a more sure promise that a repenting church who suffers in hope will be given his renewing life. And that's because the church gets to share in his victory. Uh, my boys and I have been enjoying the Marvel Avengers movies in the last few years. And one of their favorite characters is Captain America. I mean, he's buff, right? <laughs> he's pretty cool. Not, what's not to like about him? And in every movie, he gets pounded. Boom! Some big, you know, baddie from some other galactic world. And then he gets pounded again, and the global rock comes and smashes his face, and something happens, and he just gets pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. And of course, every movie, there's a point at which you think he's down, he's dead. A few seconds later, he stands up again, kind of staggering, and says, I could do this all day. Yeah! Now, of course, in the movies, it's some sort of secret sauce German special technology that gives his body the ability to heal itself and be super buff and, you know, big tough guy. But the point for us as the church is actually that's the great image of the church. Our great hope is not how potentially fantastic our leaders are or anything else or German secret special sauce. It's the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ who, whose life courses through our veins as a body, who feeds us with himself, whose spirit lives in and groans and enlivens and speaks to us. His power is the thing that raises the body and leads her to repentance and renewal all around the world. And that's the, the, one, the last thing I want to say as we close I want to help you see these things actually by talking about the Christian church in Africa. About 100 years ago, Christians in Africa made up about 1% of Christendom. Today, they make up around 25% of Christendom. If things continue the way they have been, then by 2050, so 30 years from now, people expect that sub-Saharan African Christians will make up 40% of Christendom. That means one out of every two Christians you meet would be a sub-Saharan African. Okay? The point is that the church is much bigger than America. Much bigger than the PCA. Praise God. Okay? What we see in any corner the Lord has put us is a tiny sliver of a fraction of a corner of what God is doing in the entire globe 
all the time. The point is that the, uh, the Lord is working so hard and his reign is undaunted. But there's also a call to respond to God's promise of hope and victory and the growth he's already begun. Look, um, the overwhelming majority of seminaries, scholarship, theological books are written in the U.S. and in uh, Western Europe. There are no systematic theologies written by African theologians, period. Uh, there are also no RUF campus ministers in all of Africa, as far as I know. Uh, in the main Presbyterian denomination, in fact, in Malawi, where we're headed, there's not even enough ministers, okay? Uh, in the PCA, our denomination, the average ratio of minister to people is one minister to 75 people. That's pretty good. It's still a lot of people, isn't it? Can you imagine caring for 75 people? It'd be a lot. In Malawi, the ratio is one minister to, on average, 2,600 people. Just think back over the last year of the kind of care that you would have received if you were one of 2,600 people in your local congregation. How well would that minister know you? What kind of discipleship would be on offer? What kind of preaching, what kind of time would he have to devote to the care of his people? And the fact is, that's just the statistics. There's a lot of other problems in the church in Malawi. There's a lot of things that dishearten and disgust me. Right along with all the things that enliven our hope and say, yes, the church is growing. The point is that not all growth is good growth. Churches can grow cancerous. And that's the work we've committed to ourselves as a family, is to work and invest in that church in Malawi through theological ed and training counselors. But the point of this text for us is that the entire reason we can invest in a struggling, smitten, sinful church is that the Lord has promised that he will grow her and renew her and strengthen her. There is no lost investment in God's people. And he will bring life and victory and glory to the church in Africa and even to the church in Bellingham, friends. The question for us this morning is that as we look at the great calling and the great joy of being part of that, will we engage? Will we give ourselves to what the Lord is doing in the global church and even here in this local church to see that his life and his glory come to roost here? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you this morning in thanks that you oh, are not only glorious, but you have known suffering for our sake and even now uh, tenderly care for us. Lord, encourage us, give us life and joy, and we pray for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.